If there's a single moment that sums up just how absurd the 2020 presidential race feels to me right now, it's this one from George Stephanopoulos' Sunday talk show last weekend. I'm not running for president. You know, I guarantee you that I'm not going to run for president. This to me, nah, I, probably ever. First, Stephanopoulos plays this tape. Julian Castro, the former mayor of San Antonio. It's from a few years back, and Castro is denying he'd ever be interested in a presidential run. But then Stephanopoulos welcomes Castro to the show. Listen, everybody has a right to change their minds, to find their passion. What's changed for you? Well, a lot of things have changed, George. Uh, Where he announces not that he's running, not quite, but that he's thinking about it. And, oh yeah, he's got a big announcement to make later this week. It was this elaborate presentation of a pretty simple idea, a presidential kabuki dance. It, it is, I think kabuki is the exact right term for it. It's just sort of the ritual of running. Jamel Bowie's been Slate's political guru for years. I asked him to tell me I'm not crazy, even though presidential campaign coverage can make me feel that way as I try to keep track of exploratory committees and chicken dinners in Iowa. It's, for whatever reason, considered to be bad form to just sort of plainly say, I want to be president and I'm going to run for it. And I've been planning this um, for some time. You have to pretend as if that somehow isn't the case. Like it or not, we're going to be seeing a lot more of these announcements about announcements. Jamel says even if it feels like it's too early to be paying attention, it isn't. Political scientists identify something called the invisible primary, and that's just the term given to all of the jockeying and sort of maneuvering that happens before people start to vote. You know, uh, figures like Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, um, Bernie Sanders, they've been making the rounds in South Carolina and Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. They've been visiting these places for the past two years. I mean, when you start to hear these announcements, I wouldn't think of them as early. I would think of them as more or less right on time. <laughs> I mean, I guess while all this stuff kind of makes me a little bit tired, I feel like you see it a little bit differently. I feel like you have this bottomless curiosity about it and how it's going to turn out. <laughs> I mean, I, I think part of my perspective here is obviously the personalities matter here. But I'm not necessarily looking at it purely in terms of the personalities. I'm looking at it as a process. Jamel doesn't think about this in terms of one candidate versus another. Not yet, anyway. He thinks about how all these candidates are changing what we talk about and how. You know, I, I actually really understand the sense of being uh, sort of exhausted by it all. But for me, the, my interest is sort of in how familiar dynamics play out how certain candidates connect and certain candidates don't. I have a framework for thinking about it. And there's a, a degree to which I'm kind of plugging in the values for any given election. So today, Jamel's going to show me the 2020 presidential contest from his perspective. If politics is one big experiment, Jamel's got a bunch of hypotheses he's looking to test out. And even though the election itself is still a while away, he's got some hints about what's coming next. Stay with us. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. 
products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit MFM.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm going to start here, which is we're talking a lot about the Democrats because obviously open field for them. But I want to talk about the Republicans. And it's kind of obvious, but I'm wondering what are the Republicans going to be testing out in terms of what works in terms of messaging, in terms of what they want to say? That's a good question. I think that the institutional Republican Party, which I think just refers more or less to the the longstanding body of activists, donors, lawmakers who have kind of been in the game for a while, institutions like the the Republican National Committee, that, that kind of thing, they're going to want to run a very standard issue incumbency campaign. I actually would not be surprised if they try to lean on the 1984 Reagan campaign, Morning in America. They'll emphasize economic growth, they'll emphasize wage growth, they'll emphasize like relative peace and prosperity. The problem for the Institutional Republican Party is that Donald Trump, the president, understands his victory in 2016 as basically a product of the kind of breathless, fear-mongering, anti-immigrant, you know, America's on the verge of chaos message. So I think messaging-wise, that, that one of the dynamics to, to look at, to look forward, to examine over the next two years is the conflict between the president's messaging and the institutional Republican Party's messaging and how they attempt to square the circle. Now, it's, it's possible, given especially the degree to which Republican Party elites have basically gone all in on the president, that they'll simply adopt his style of messaging, that there won't be any particular divide between the two. But I I think there'll be some tension there. And we just saw this midterm result where in one sense, the sort of Donald Trump, you know, America is in chaos message worked and that it turned out the very dedicated base. But in another sense, it really turned off a lot of the electorate, right? Donald Trump's Republican allies, they lost more or less every single demographic category other than white men, and I think they narrowly won whites without college degrees. Every other group, they lost, and and many of them by significant margins. And I think what's critical is if you look at a house map, or not a house map, if you just look at a map of the United States with house districts on it, and superimpose that on a map of the Electoral College, Democratic House victories, given where they occur, the states that they occurred in, they correspond to basically like a modest Electoral College win. Yes, Republicans held the Senate, but other than Florida, I believe, um, those were all red state seats. There's not really, you know, that doesn't really translate into anything major for the party's presidential prospects. And so, yeah, that message... Uh, if we're looking at a national election, that, that message can be very uh, damaging. And, and the second, I think there's a second thing here, and that is Donald Trump is very unpopular. His administration, you could fairly say, is in chaos. He faces criminal investigation. Several close associates have been indicted. It's entirely possible that by the end of this year, his presidency might be falling apart in a dramatic way, more so than it is now. And so there there are whispers of a primary campaign, and Republican leaders are clearly worried about someone trying to primary the president. And so if that happens, if John Someone Kasich, trying to primary the president? I love that. <laughs> if John Kasich of Ohio jumps in, 
if Mitt Romney decides to take a shot at it, that will be a real dilemma for the party. Um, not that Trump would necessarily lose the nomination. I, I can't even think of a time that's ever happened in American politics ever. But a sitting president facing a primary challenge is like a bad omen for the election in part because it signals really critical weakness within the party base. So Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush both faced primaries when they ran for re-election. And um, they both lost. And I think there's a connection between the two things. So that's that's another thing for Republicans to worry about. Well, you know, you're painting this as really a fight a little bit for the soul of the Republican Party. But it seems to me that it's also this fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. Because right now we're seeing these really progressive ideas coming out of Democrats, both people who are announcing that they are running for president, but then also people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's not running for president, but she's new in Washington. And I I have to say, like, I never thought my Twitter would be blowing up about the marginal tax rate, but this weekend it did. And it sort of spurred conversation among the 2020 candidates about it. So how do you think all that is going to influence where the Democratic Party is going? I mean, it's clear that whether people label themselves progressives or populist or or socialists, it's clear that the Democratic Party base is moving to the left, is looking for sort of larger more expansive solutions to the problems, um, is looking for people who are like vocally anti-Trump. It's It's been funny over the past two years, one of the recurring kind of narratives is that Democrats can't just be anti-Trump. But looking at election results, looking at who's catching fire with voters and Democratic voters and independents, it appears that you can just be anti-Trump. A lot of voters want someone, want people in office who kind of represent their anger and disgust at the president. And Ocasio-Cortez does that. And so I'm not sure every Democrat running will adopt her particular kinds of policy positions, but I think many of the Democrats running will adopt her sort of, I think it's sincere anger, but it's also performed anger at the president, at the Republican Party. That's, that's, I think, a big influence she'll have. One, it's not just the anger. It's like when she mentioned raising taxes really significantly, all of a sudden we saw, you know, Julian Castro, who is running for president, as far as we know, go on the Sunday shows and say, yeah, like, that sounds like a great idea. And it just feels like a conversation that we wouldn't have had four years ago, eight years ago. I think that's right. I mean, I I don't have any deeper analysis other than to say that it's been fascinating to watch her uh, statement that, you know, there should be a 70 percent marginal tax rate on the very rich um, immediately sort of open up the the space for discussing high marginal tax rates. I mean, it's noteworthy, right, that the discussion about tax rates is now whether 70 percent is necessarily too high. Maybe it could go higher. And then also the conversation is about historical tax rates, that the response to that's insane isn't, you know, maybe we'll moderate. It's, hey, 30 years, 40 years ago, tax rates were even higher. So what's necessarily problematic about this? I think smart Democratic presidential aspirants, if they're paying attention to this, will take it as confirmation that they can propose things that may have been considered out of the mainstream even five years ago. And not only will voters 
observers take them seriously, there may be a chorus of defense from their side saying, no, in fact, that this is not an unreasonable thing and that we should think seriously about it and we should pursue it. Yeah. I mean, like a good example of this to me, just looking from the outside, is a candidate like Jay Inslee, who is a governor of Washington state. And he's has been out there saying my campaign's about climate change, which I mean, I guess Al Gore was maybe the last candidate to really make climate change a huge part of the agenda. And it made me wonder, like, are we ready for a candidate who is having that as their main message? I actually think that in the same way that healthcare was a major part of the 2016 campaign, I think climate, the Green New Deal that Acacio Cortez has been pushing is going to be a major part of the 2020 election. I think there's on the Democratic left and increasingly sort of on the Democratic center left and center kind of really growing urgency about climate, um, especially knowing that a Republican administration is just not going to attempt to solve the problem. So I think Inslee is ha- wisely has a sense of what the issue space is going to look like and is trying to get ahead of other candidates on this. And it'll be uh, it'll remain to be seen if other presidential hopefuls meet him by going even more expansive. Um, I mean, because you think about the history of elections and you think about the history of this country, I guess I'm wondering, we, we're seeing these really progressive ideas coming out. When was the last time we were having conversations like this with voters? Like, it seems new. And I wonder if there are lessons from history about like the last time we sort of had these conversations about structural change. I mean, it is new in the sense that there is a turning away from the kind of, I think, timidity of democratic politicians um, of the 90s and the the 2000s. Some of that, I think, is attributable purely to Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. I think some of it's attributable to generational change. I think something underrated in understanding the dynamics of Democratic Party politics is that you have a generation of politicians who came of age in an era of Republican ascendance. On the older, on the oldest side of this are people who who won office in the late 70s, who saw the Reagan revolution, who saw Bush win, who saw Clinton adjust to the realities of that, who saw openly liberal Democrats like Mondale and Dukakis lose in major ways. You kind of experienced kind of a, a real backlash against liberalism and adjusted accordingly and met the challenge by essentially adopting the rhetorical stylings of and basic assumptions of conservative governance. And then you have a generation of Democrats who entered politics um, 20 years later, 25 years later, when Republicans still held power, but didn't hold the same kind of monopoly on sort of political discourse, who saw the collapse of the Bush administration, who saw the backlash to Obama's conciliatory rhetoric and decided that, you know, the response to this is to just be openly and um, unapologetically liberal. Bernie Sanders' campaign, again, demonstrated that one can embrace big universal policies and not see a particular backlash. So all those things put together, it, it does shape the public conversation in a new way. There's a new sense or a growing sense or some combination of the two that the United States needs a more robust social safety net that it needs, you know, bold, broad action on a whole host of issues, and that the and that the American public is ready to consider those um, policies. 
also kind of a, a factor influencing all of this is the experience of the Affordable Care Act. And that is, it was pieced together from various sources. I think it's closer, a closer point of comparison. But it was attempt to compromise to say that we have this goal of extending coverage and so we're going to use market mechanisms and, and sort of government-based uh, mechanisms. And eight years after, or nine years after its passage almost, what is the, what are the most popular and lasting and durable parts of the Affordable Care Act? It's the Medicaid expansion. It's the part that really is just kind of a blunt object of a policy. The government mm-hmm. extends Medicaid eligibility to more people. That's it. The marketplace isn't really the popular part. Right, right. No one no no one's clamoring to preserve the exchanges, right? It created a whole new constituency of people for, you know, government subsidized provided health insurance. And now a lot of Democratic candidates are talking about Medicare for all. Right. I, th- I think the lesson drawn from that is that there's no, not only is there no political point in trying to, you know, develop some kind of ideological policy compromise, um, taking, you know, right-leaning ideas, conservative ideas, because we're not going to get any good faith response for it, but that if we want to really strengthen and preserve the program for the duration, it's just a simple expansion of, of government policy is going to do the trick. And I think that's also influencing how Democrats are looking at the policy question this election. And I mean, I'll, I'll say this. Cory Booker um, of New Jersey is, I think, what you'd call like a moderate liberal Democrat. He's not, you know, a firebrand. He's not, you know, rhetorically, he's not sort of like someone. He's not like Ocasio-Cortez or Sanders or anyone Cory Booker is proposing as part of his, you know, soon-to-be campaign, a policy called baby bonds. That's sort of the name, the name for the policy, whereby every single American child born after the policy is passed gets a couple thousand dollars in savings bonds. They get the full value of them at age 18. Every year, the government puts more money into the savings account so that by the time they're 18, you know, um, there'll be everyone will have like 25 grand that they can just like congratulations you're 18 years old here's twenty five thousand dollars. It's like social security for young people, right? And that depending on sort of demographic characteristics like you know your zip code or whatever, you may get more um, than that, like a supplement. It's hard to imagine a Democrat openly talking about that 10 years ago, right? Like that would have seemed radical 10 years ago, but things have moved forward. Jamel Bowie has been Slate's political correspondent, and he's now headed to The New York Times. He's going to start this month. Congratulations, Jamel. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. While we were talking about the 2020 presidential hopefuls, I jumped down one more rabbit hole with Jamel. Jamel told me he's wondering if this is going to be a particularly bad time to be a Democratic presidential candidate who's white. Okay, I know you're like, did the revolution happen while I was sleeping? No, everything's the same. But Jamel says race and how a candidate thinks about race 
if past elections made it subtext, the last presidential contest made it text. I think what what on the Democratic side is a bit of a dilemma is this need to show social solidarity with voters of color, which is important, which is not something that should be abandoned. It's a very vital thing um, in American politics right now. So how do you do that without also helping to polarize the entire election along racial issues? For white Democrats, proving they aren't racist will mean showing how un-Trump they really are, which is going to feed right into the narrative Republicans are trying to sell that Democrats are ignoring white voters. Jamel says, think back to the midterms when that video came out with Beto O'Rourke at a black church talking about police violence. How can it be in this day and age, in this very year, in this community, that a young man, African-American, in his own apartment, is shot and killed by a police officer? His opponent, Senator Ted Cruz, actually tweeted this video out as if he was saying to voters, see? And of course, Ted Cruz won that contest. For Jamel, it's a kind of warning to other white Democrats. You know, if you're a candidate of color and a Democrat, it's a little easier because you can simply embody the opposition to Trump's racism. You can you don't have to say anything. It's just you being a black man, you being a black woman, you being a Latino man. That alone says, I oppose these things. If you're a white candidate, it's a little different. You might have to actually be kind of vocal about it. But in being vocal about it, you might activate or spark this dynamic. And I don't know how that's going to play out. But it it might be, it might be, uh, you know, might be a little difficult. (laughs) (laughs) That's the show. We are back five days a week, coming down your feed bright and early. Tell us what you think by leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes. That review is how other people find us, so give us a little love. On Twitter, you can find us at Slate Podcasts, or you can just find me at Mary's Desk. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Talk to you tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.